Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Dr. Simon calling from doing the show from sunny Florida. Um, just talking to my guest, Dr. Jean Stolzer, what I want to introduce. And she says it's snowing where she is. And I'm sitting and looking out at a palm tree. So what can you do? Let me introduce Dr. Stolzer who is a professor of child and adolescent development at the University of Nebraska Kearney. She currently teaches infant child and adolescent development classes and is an active researcher. Dr. Stolzer has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and presented her research at the national and international levels. She has won numerous research and teaching awards and has been a passionate child advocate for over 35 years. Dr. Stoltz's research interests, including attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise as known as ADHD, the biocultural implications of attachment parenting, and the most multivariational effects of labeling children and challenging the existing medical model, which seeks to pathologize normal range human behavior. Good evening, Dr. Stoltzer. Good evening, Dr. Simon. It's very, very good to be with you. I'm glad you're here. So let's talk about the drugging of America, and in particular, if you wish, the drugging of our children and what the implications of that seem to be. It's really, really reached epidemic proportions in the United States. I, I started out as a preschool teacher many, many, many years ago, and then I taught a year of kindergarten, and none of my children in the early 80s, mid-80s, had any of these psychiatric illnesses. Not one of my children were on any psychiatric drug. And when you contrast that with what's happening today, you can't be in my shoes and just sit quietly and watch. Something's wrong with this picture. It is. Mm-hmm. When we've got 1.5 million Toddlers, this is four years of age and younger, on full-time psychiatric drugs. Older than that, we've got 8 million. Okay. Now, all of these children, let me ask you a hard question. All of these children must have been diagnosed by a medical professional or a psychologist professional that they have this disorder. What's the difference now between the fact that in the 80s when you didn't see any of the children on these drugs is that the problem begins with this epidemic of diagnosing the children as having something wrong with them? Well, I think to answer that very, very difficult question, we have to look at the economic side of this. And under the American with Disabilities Act, we introduced something in the 1990-91 session called the IDEA, IDEA Act, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And under that act, 1990-91, please, I hope your listeners will look it up. Under that act, things like ADHD, bipolar, anxiety are now looked at as legitimate disorders that are covered under the American with Disabilities Act, which prior to this Mm. was only encompassing physical disabilities. So there's a money trail here. Of course, in 1984, nobody was diagnosing kids with this. I mean, we had kids that ran, jumped, and climbed and didn't pay any attention and were messy. Of course we did. 
it just didn't benefit us economically to have them labeled because our schools didn't profit economically for that. So when you ask that question, <clears throat> we have to look at the economic piece of that puzzle. And still today, when you look at private schools, Catholic schools, Jewish schools, Waldorf schools, their rates of ADHD and oppositional defiance and all these other mythical disorders are extraordinarily low because they get no funding for this. So they have to deal with the children's, you know, issues in other ways like we did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, and prior to 1991. Now, you use the word mythical disorders. What do you mean by a mythical disorder? I mean, that's what oh. I think you and I will discuss that at much greater length later. Are you suggesting that the disorders aren't real medical problems? I'm absolutely problems. And in fact, many of the children are boys and a five-year-old boy to sit in a chair, sit in a seat, <laughs> is in itself a kind of an unnatural act. It's absolutely and totally antithetical to our bioevolutionary history. The hominid species, young males don't sit still. They never have they never will. You can drug them into sitting still. You can drug them into extended seat work and compliance, but this is not their heritage. So, of course, I call it a mythical disorder. Does running, jumping, climbing, not paying attention, messing, does that exist? Of course it exists. It exists across all cultures, across all mammals, and across all time frames. It exists. In fact, it seems to be... Disorder a natural developmental function that has to take place for a normal development to take place, running and jumping and playing. Um, yes? It's, it, it, here's this, if anything gets me crazy, it's when I hear, well, he's disordered and he's disordered because my right. is, has always been this. Are you sure he's disordered? Or have you created a disordered world for him that he has to fit in that has nothing to do with his neurological, physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional, social, any kind of his needs? They're all thwarted, and they're thwarted at every turn, and then we call him disordered. It's right. ridiculous, but look at how many people are making money off the backs of, him, off the backs of these boys. Let's make one thing clear, because you and I both know that no, there are no medical tests that show any kind of serious biochemical, neurological problems that underlie these disorders. It's all done on the basis of behavior in a given context. Well, I think you just exposed one of the dirtiest little secrets of psychiatry, and that is, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, there are no cognitive, metabolic, neurologic, or any other type of assessment that can definitively diagnose any mental disorder. It's right in the DSM. Yes, yes. You know, I, let, me, let me take you through a, a little bit of a diversion here, and then we'll go on. If somebody should be brought into a hospital, police find somebody raving and screaming in the street that God told him to jump in front of a subway train, the first things they do if I understand the protocol, is that they run a head scan, a scan of his head. Then they do a tox screen to see if he's on any kind of drugs. 
And then they do a blood sugar analysis, a blood work to show whether or not he has hypoglycemia. Let's say we have the first guy comes in and they do a screen on his head and there's a tumor in one of his centers. And the next day they uh, operate. And when he comes out of the surgery, he's perfectly reasonable and rational and God no longer wants to, to jump off the subway train. Would this be a medical problem that was solved or a mental illness problem that was solved? Clearly a physiological problem. There was a tumor in the brain. This is a no, neurological Number two, guy comes in and they do a blood work on him, and he's on every upper drug known to human science and then some they can't identify. When they now take him off the drugs a week later, he now no longer hears God screaming at him. Did we have a physiological problem induced by drugs, or is this a mental illness? We had a drug-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Number three, they come in, the guy, the blood sugar level is at the point at which this guy can go into shock and die. So they give him a large glass of orange juice, with some sugar in it, his blood sugar level rises and God stops speaking to him. Medical problem or mental illness problem? Medical problem. Now we have this craziness that they call a medical problem based on some kind of non-neurological evidence a mental, mental problem. If there really was something in the brain that was that upset, he would have another medical issue. Absolutely, so and he, what, would going, yeah, he would be going to a neurologist. Yeah. Right, and he wouldn't be seeing you or I for therapy, nor a psychiatrist for therapy. And the last thing anybody would then suggest is give him a drug that does then upset the normal functioning of the brain. See, the whole thing is so illogical when you think it through. Now, what are some of the problems that these drugs create that your research shows in children, uh, and we'll stay with children for a while, um, if you don't mind, what are the things that these drugs might be doing to children? Especially when you give me the horrifying statistic that a million and a half, was it, under four-year-olds now being given these drugs? Yes, and these are little children that's brains are nowhere near mature. Right, right. It's unbelievable. Anyway, when does the human brain show adult maturity? We're not talking about personality now, but the brain. It depends on if you're a male or a female. For example, when you're looking at the prefrontal lobes of a male that control impulsivity, you know, acting without thinking, those kind of things, we see that immaturity in males till about 24 to 26 years of age. That's, <laughs> that's a long, long time for the brain to be maturing out, but it makes perfect sense in a bioevolutionary, you know, with the bioevolutionary lens. Females tend to mature out about 14 to 16, and that makes sense, too, because that's the age that our species was having babies, and you better have impulse control when you're right. a mother. So they're very, very different. So that the, the brain, when we talk about giving these drugs to four-year-olds, and their brains are not mature, all the way up into young adulthood, or at least mid-adolescence for females, their brains are being uh, inundated with these particular drugs that we know disorganize the brain. 
Absolutely. They cause brain atrophy. There's no doubt about it. There's simply no doubt about it anymore. We've known that with the psychostimulant classifications of drugs. We've known this for 70 years. And yet we're giving it to our youngest and most vulnerable members of society. And you hit on something very important. Let's just be honest. Let's just be very, very honest with this conversation. And that is this. Young males are the ones that are getting drugged out of their gourds at one, two, three, four. We usually, we usually leave females alone until they're about 13, 14, 15, and then we get them with very different diseases or disorders. We get them with depression and anxiety, but we leave them alone. We're not typically drugging little girls who are 18-month-olds. This, this is a boy deal. It, it is. Mm-hmm. 90% of our special education students in this country, 90% are male. Now, if this right. was flipped around and it was female, the feminists would be in the street tearing things down, saying, your assessments are wrong. This is anti-female. But since it's male, 90%, nobody – well, that's not true. Very few people are saying anything. Right. They won't touch right. it. It's too politically explosive. I've published extensively in this area. 90% of our special education students male. You've got to be kidding. Well, right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. My wife is a special ed teacher. And so she works. She's worked for many, many years. Uh, I forced her to retire when we came to Florida and she still hasn't forgiven me because I I never (laughs) met anybody who who loved teaching and children the way she did uh, and does. But we were once walking along the beach and there was a bunch of little girls were playing in the sand, generally nice and quiet and little boys are doing what little boys do. In fact, you worry if they don't do it. They're running in and out of the water, and they're shrieking, and they're screaming, and they're having a wonderful time. And this was Labor Day. And she said, tomorrow they have to sit in a classroom. (laughs) So it just just creates a vision. How the hell do you get these little boys to sit down? When a little boy in her class, she had small classes, which I think was very important. But when they felt they had to walk around, they walked around. Yeah. She would teach them while they walked. It's and you know what? Just... They learned while they walked. <laughs> yes, they learn while they move. That's what they've been doing for millions of years. Okay, I have a yes. great story. You will love this. I was at an international conference presenting a paper on ADHD, and there were, I think there were 112 countries represented at this conference. I mean, it was big. And I was sitting and getting ready and kind of nervous with this huge group. And in the front row, I noticed this beautiful man from India. He had on the full Indian dress, beautiful, lovely man. And I couldn't help but look at him. He was so stunning. And when I started talking, I started giving, at the very beginning of the presentation, I started giving the symptoms of this particular disorder, fidgeting, reading right from the DSM. I was reading directly from the DSM. Fidgeting, refusal to play quietly, messiness, excessive running, jumping, uh, climbing, and he stood up. I've never been interrupted in a presentation like this. This man from India stood up, and he said, stop. Are you telling me these are indicators of a disease in children? I said, yes, sir. I'm reading directly from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. He said without missing a beat, in my country, no, he said in my culture, in my culture, if children don't do these things, we look at them as disordered. It's complete flip-off. 
and it's the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's what you worry about. Little children who don't move and practice motor activity and practice interacting and little boys who don't push at each other because evolution has taught us that the big bull gets the best cows. You know? um, this, this just, it's mind boggling. I got a, a paper from Sue Parry. You know Sue, don't you? Yes, I do. Yeah. And it's most of the di- initial diagnosis of children in, with mental ADHD come from teachers. Oh, that, that's Fred Bauman's work from years and years ago, pediatric neurologist. He's published 99%, he says 98.5, 98.5% of all referrals for diagnosis for mental illness come directly from the United States public school system. And please, I hope I don't step on your toes because I know your wife is a fabulous, fabulous teacher, but still she's not trained as a neurologist, psychologist, psychiatrist. She's not. She would never be. She thought of herself she as a never, teacher. Yeah, she's a teacher. And but she's never. what's happened with this diagnostic system. Yeah. It has worked its way out of the psychiatric. And I'm going to say to it, we psychologists who are just as guilty in using these diagnostic terms, especially those of us, and we'll get to this later, because this is a pet peeve of mine. We know they're not disorders, and we use the because you can't get paid unless the insurance form goes in with the diagnostic term. Talk about a devil's bargain. Um, but it's worked its way now down into the culture to the point where... Everybody now looks at somebody and says, this is a mental, uh, an, a mental illness. They don't use the word disorder. Uh, the, the profession now says disorder because they gave up calling it an illness, but it's still treated as if it's an illness. And for the public at large, mental illness is a perfectly legitimate term. And the teachers who use it are simply following their, what they believe are their educated betters. So there's a big problem here. There's a really big problem here. This is the first time in recorded human history that our children, our children have been watched like hawks. Yes, indeed. By adults from daycare workers to public school teachers to the soccer coaches. They're being watched like hawks for any, any symptom of these behavioral or psychiatric disorders. We never were watched. Our moms told us, go down the block and play. You're bored? I'll give you something to do here. So we ran and ran. We used to have to come home when the streetlights got Nobody was watching us. Right. But And not only watched, but any form of deviancy. And God forbid, and I see this with my grandchildren, their anxiety. They, if they say they're unhappy, then something is really must be wrong. And the parents who have children who are anyway deviant in behavior, and I don't mean deviant in any negative sense, but not like the typical or what we believe the typical average child is like, because none of them are typical and none of them are average. But any child who is really unhappy, we don't ask about the context of the unhappiness. But we look and say, oh, my God, there's a serious problem here. 
It's uh, and I don't know where this ends, but it doesn't end well. <laughs> unless, doesn't end well. And that is why. Unless we start educating the public to what you and I and thousands of our colleagues already know, which will raise Absolutely. all kinds of very serious problems when we try to move the, the, the Titanic from hitting the iceberg that we know is already there. I want to comment about one thing you said a little while ago. Those evolutionary-based behaviors we're seeing in little boys, the running, jumping, climbing, the hunting, the pre-hunting, the pre-warrior behaviors we're seeing in our little boys, these are evolutionary-based behaviors that ensured the survival of our species. That's yes. exactly what they are. And yes. now we've, we've got to this place where we call them mental disorders. Are you crazy? This is what No, are we crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Before I forget, because you're bringing up incredible points, I have really good insurance. I do. I work for the state, and I was just looking over uh, my insurance, uh, and what I found out was I can, if something's going on with me, say I'm having anxiety attacks or I'm feeling depressed, I can go to a talk therapist, so talk therapy, counseling, if you will. I can do that for three times. And they'll pay for it. After that, it's on me. But then I just looked at the caveat for drugs, psychiatric drugs, my insurance will pay for them. Can you believe what I'm saying? Not only are schools turning into brokers for the pharmaceutical industry, but now insurance companies are. Right. You know, I work with people with anxiety for 50 years. Until I discovered that anxiety can become a problem when you won't accept the anxiety. That anxiety is an evolutionary-based emotion. It probably began as our hunter-gatherers were out in the bush and something moved in a bush. It aroused an attention response. Because here was something in that bush which, A, you could have for lunch, or B, would have you for lunch. That's right. The moment they would see what's in the bush, if it was a lion or something that would eat them, anxiety stopped and they felt fear or anger and they had to run or fight. We now live in a culture in which anxiety is everywhere, and much of the anxiety, it seems to me, is anxiety about having anxiety. Yes. Rather than ask about the meaning of anxiety. The worst anxiety I ever worked with, because I worked in Flushing Hospital, and before the neighborhood became Asian, it was largely Irish. And a lot of the guys who would come home from work would stop at the bar and have a few, and then go home and drink. And when Daddy got drunk, sometimes Daddy fell asleep, sometimes Daddy was a lot of fun. But sometimes Daddy became a problem to the family. When the children said, Mommy, Daddy is drunk, very often they were told, he's not drunk. He doesn't feel well. Mm -hmm. This creates a massive anxiety. When you have to know a piece of truth and you can't get to the truth, when you're told that what your eyes and mental processing tell you is a fact and you're told that's not the fact, you go into a state of anxiety because the anxiety says, boy, girl, there's a piece of bullshit here that has to be unraveled. 
That is anxiety. When we bullshit ourselves, when we bullshit out, I'm watching the, the political system, and I don't want to talk about the system, what's going on now. I'm in a constant state of anxiety. Yes, how can you I help? As to what may be happening, and none of it seems to turn out well in my mind. <laughs> anxiety is a normal human function until you can't deal with the anxiety as emotion and you deal with it as, oh, God, there's something wrong with me. And the first time you say, that, that's it, you're on a pill. It takes away the anxiety and it takes away the rest of your emotions. Yes, but if you notice on the very insert of those anti-anxiety drugs, one of the major side effects is anxiety. Yes. <laughs> yes. It really yes. is. Yes. You know what? Your head can start spinning and your hair can start catch fire because the <laughs> logic of this is so backwards. And you really have to then, unless you get a position where you say, take a stand on it, you become anxious yourself. What's the you really truth? Do. And another oxymoronic part of this whole puzzle is this. People that are very, very depressed oftentimes go to their doctors. It takes them, and what is it? On the last research I saw, it was 8.3 minutes to diagnose them, do the da-da-da, and you walk out with your prescription. <laughs> the second major side effect for antidepressants, you remember you were very depressed and you thought you might kill yourself, is that these drugs can cause suicide. So what the hell would you take a person who you thought might commit suicide and prescribe them a drug that increases the risk that they'll commit suicide? If this isn't the lunatics running the asylum, I'll eat my hat. Yes. So now talk, let's talk about that for a minute, because I know that there is evidence to suggest that not only can these uh, antidepressive drugs and the other stimulants that are being given to people, uh, I mean, for the ADHD kids, the supposedly ADHD kids, they actually give them methamphetamines. I mean, if I sell the methamphetamines in a bottle given to my child, I can go to jail for 10 years for selling illegal. Isn't that true? Absolutely it is. It is. So I give them to my child and I pay for them for my child to take them. It's not only the suicide that we think is an issue, is it? It's the, also the overt expression or the release of violence. Can we talk about that? It's really wild because I'm an old hippie, came from the old hippie generation, and our parents in the 60s and 70s used to kneel beside the bed and pray. Please, dear God, don't let them get on drugs. Please, dear God, don't let them get on drugs. And that yes. was my generation, and now the next generation are the parents giving the most dangerous ad addictive drugs to their four- and five-year-olds with their cornflakes. Yes. <sighs> yes. So we have changed. I just got a paper of mine that I just wrote, and I wanted to know if you wanted me to go over. You asked some of the effects of these particular drugs on the developing brain, and I just went and got it. You want to talk about that for a oh, minute? Go for it. All of this is, is incredibly important, and I feel that uh, you and I and maybe a lot of others who want to get on board have a mission. We do. And the mission, mission. is to save ourselves, our society, our children, uh, from one of the biggest, it's probably the biggest lie that a society accepted since the notion of witches and witchcraft. Oh, I love that. I really believe that. I do, too. I mean, for 
several hundred years, millions of people literally, literally were tested for evidence of witchcraft. The mark of Cain. I mean, some of the best, I, you know, they, they would take a, 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 mostly women. And back then it was mostly women or some men. Uh, women who, by the way, were disobedient to their husbands or didn't accept the traditional feminine role. And they would go over their body and look for a mark. And if they found it, that was proof they were a witch. They stuck them with needles, and they put needles in their breasts. If they bled, they were a witch. If you still needed proof, they would set them on fire. If they burned, they were innocent. If they didn't, (laughs) it was true. They were a witch. They put them down and dropped them into deep water. If they floated, they were innocent of being a witch. If they drowned, their soul had been saved. And they were not guilty of witchcraft. And so, it's been on hundreds of years. Yep. This was normal behavior. You know there were people that... Go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry? Go ahead. No, no, that's... uh, To me, this is another movement of irrationality for political purposes, for economic purposes which are part, to me, of the same evolutionary tribalism and authoritarianism to which we are all heir. It's really true. So talk about the brain issues, the issues of developing brain with some of these drugs, because I think that's critically important. Okay, let's do stimulants first. That, that category is Ritalin, Adderall, things we give for ADHD. Um, and I just took this. This is some of the easiest research I ever did. All I did was just copy directly from the insert of the drug. So that's what I'm reading from right now. These are highly addictive drugs, and they've been known to cause insomnia, seizures, agitation, irritability, nervousness, confusion, vis- visual disturbances, aggression, disorientation, personality changes, apathy, social isolation, depression, suicide, paranoia, mania, violent feelings toward others. It, this is uncontrollable mania, acute anxiety, abnormal thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and acute psychosis. And here's my favorite. They impair growth, including brain growth. What? what? And this is from the manufacturer's literature. Yes. yes. This is not this some is outlier who's who plotting against drugs. This is unbelievable. Okay, let's do some antidepressants, you know, the ones typically prescribed for uh, depression, and some of our most common are Prozac and Zoloft, Cymbalta. Okay, well, we need, to talk, we need to say this right up front. There are numerous, numerous published data sets that show that antidepressants are no more effective than a sugar pill. Let's just get that out there. What are we still prescribing something for that's no more effective than a sugar pill? Because it may, it's a business. Of course it's a business. But these like are when the mafia sugar- somebody and said, it's just business. <laughs> it's business. It's business. It's, okay, so some of the things they cause are uh, manic psychosis, violence, loss of impulse control, a sensation of being tortured from within. Think of that. Other or self-directed violence, obsessive suicidal thoughts or behaviors, flat affect, loss of empathy, delirium, brain abnormalities, 
I mean, it just gets, it gets crazy. Hostility, emotional instability, psychosis, confusion, delusions. Who would ever, ever think of taking or especially giving their child this? It's, I, I, I cannot believe I've lived to see this. I can't. But I have. Well, so you I'm have never... to believe it because this is, this is what we're dealing with. And until and, I and... die, I'm going to fight it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're together on the air now trying to fight it. Uh, we're doing I'll tell you, though, uh, getting even our best colleagues involved in a dialogue about this is absolutely very, it's very difficult. Uh, when Thomas Zoss first wrote the book, The Myth of Mental Illness, yes. there was a frenzy of attacks against him. At the time, he had a private practice and that he was a professor at uh, Upstate University. They moved to remove his license and remove his tenure as a professor. They succeeded in getting him fired from his teaching job, but they couldn't get his license. The, the attacks on him were incredible. In the entire school, Colleagues who knew him and honored him uh, uh, and respected him, only one came to his defense. That was a professor named Ernst Becker. And Becker, if you can remember, in 1974, became famous with a book called The The Denial of Death, which is a reworking of psychoanalytic theory, which said that the real problem that we have psychologically is not with sex or aggression, the real problem is with our fear of being dead, of, of, of not existing. Yes. Anybody who tries to engage in this discussion, um, I, when I taught, I, I was a, a, the senior teacher. By the time I retired, the senior professor I had published four books. Uh, I had friends. I was respected. And I began to teach my students of abnormal psychology right out of the DSM. And I would start with my favorite, which was oppositional defiant disorder. I know. I love it. I love it. Oh. Yes. So I would go through and I would first teach my students the difference between a judgment and a description. And I would ask them, is this child being described or judged? And they all could see it's done out of context of what kind of discipline the child would get. The child is being opposing authority. Well, opposing authority, this now says that the authority is always right and the child is always wrong. There's no such thing as over, being over-authoritarian. There's no such thing as, as unfair discipline. It's the child now. It's a political statement. It is. I would then go through the diagnostic categories and one after another, and of course, I mean, by the way, one of the beauties of the diagnosis of, of oppositional is that sometimes the system doesn't show up in the doctor's office. <laughs> said that. In other words, <laughs> the it. kid knows, you don't fool around with this guy. <laughs> so you don't fight him. The word got out that I was doing this. And I suddenly discovered people I worked with for 30 years were telling their students not to take my courses, that I was crazy. 
I had made up my mind at that point for all the reasons. I was ready to retire. I had taught for 40 years. It was enough. I didn't want to commute anymore. The last term, the last year, they took away all my classes that were abnormal. I couldn't teach it anymore. Mm. I told that the nursing department had gone to my chairman and said, if he continues to teach the courses, we won't vote any of your new colleagues' tenure. Yep. Okay? I left with a very bad taste in my mouth. There was, I could have, if I was going to stay over another year or two, I would have gone to the union and I would have hired a lawyer and I would have fought this because this was against, you know, due process. This was against academic freedom. Yes. I decided it, it's just at this point, I'm not going to do it. Anybody who tries to get the discussion going is either ignored or if they can't be ignored, they get attacked. You get diagnosed. And if we go ahead with this, this discussion, right, you're going to get flack from it. You are. <laughs> like I got. Well, um, I hope you know this about me, that I've been getting flack for many, many, many years. But uh, I am not going to stop. I'm no, not. No. Okay. This is very important to know up front. Um, and I'm talking about people I was good friends with, that I liked, that had, had you know, I'd gone to their family uh, affairs and they had come to my kids' bar mitzvahs. I mean, we were, we had long-term relationships. The idea that this would be said, uh, somebody came out with an article in a popular magazine that said, how could Zas say there's no such thing as mental illness He's denying the existence of hallucinations and delusions. That's not what Zas said. He never said Zas anything of the sort. If you have a delusion or a hallucination, there's no evidence it's a medical issue. It has meaning. Right. That's right. Medical issues can be solved with science. This is problems with then living. Then went to my colleagues and said, let's have a public debate. You take the Zassian position. I'll take the medical diagnostic position. I'll take the traditional and you then publicly convinced me Zas was right. Wasn't that brilliant? It? No. Yeah, it was no, brilliant, but did they do it? Huh? Would they do it? No. Did they do it? Do it. No. You can't get anybody to read it. That's right. It's like a toxic dump. You know it's there, but you better stay away, because if you get involved in the toxic dump, you could get cancer. And this is sort of like cancer of the brain. Let's go back to some other issues that I know we talked about before, and that is uh, you have some feelings about these school shootings, mass school shootings, the ones that happened in Newton, the ones that happened. The original big one was in, uh, where was it, with Klebold and, and what was the other Columbine kid's Columbine in Colorado. Columbine. Tell me what you think the evidence is for the involvement in these uh, uh, mass murders with the psychiatric drugs? Well, there's just, no, there's just no debate about it anymore. The fact of the matter is that the vast majority of these shooters were on psychiatric drugs, had been prescribed or were on them right now. I mean, it's just, that's common knowledge. 
But first I want to talk about this for a little bit because I don't want anybody to get confused with my assertion or anything that I've published. Human beings are a very, very violent race. They are. They've always been violent. They've had turf wars. They've had religious wars. They've had drug wars. They've had, you know, they kill for passion. They, They kill, kill, kill. We always have from the beginning of recorded history. We can look back. People get wiped out because they're a different religion than you. That is normal. I mean, we could have a debate about that, but that's normal for our species. Normal, you're not saying that's good. You're simply saying that human history, by the way, somebody did a study in the 5,000 years of recorded history. Only 200 of those years from the record was there no major war. Yes, that's my point. So when you look at that, you say, wow, we're really violent. What's different now over the last 20 years, starting in April 1999 approximately, these are unprovoked, senseless mass murders. We've never seen that before. There has to be a reason. And so many of the politicians, I write about this in that paper that I sent you, they brought up guns. Now, I don't want to get into a gun debate, but here's what I know about guns. I think From we the nearly first... have to look at this in a larger context, and that's where I would like this to go, Gene. But part of what was here is there's a very strong correlation that these stimulant drugs are implicated. Now, cause and effect is not being established here. It's just a correlation. It's not only yeah. stimulant drugs. Let's get that very, very clear. It's the benzos, the non-benzos. It's the antidepressants. It's the psychostimulants. It's all of them have been implicated with these shootings. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a correlation between psychiatric drugs and when, especially with these school shootings, they're very often carried out by students and young people. Yes, and I would argue, I I know where you're going. You're a scientist, and I'm a scientist, and I appreciate it. So you're talking about correlation, and we all are smart enough to know that correlation does not infer causation. We know that, but I'm going to assert this, and I'm going to assert it loud and clear. When on an insert of a drug, it says can cause homicide, suicide, violent psychosis, hallucinations, unprovoked violent behavior when it says that and then it right. happens you call it correlational i don't i call well, I wanna, it i want to uh, uh, create ask you some questions most kids who are on this don't commit mass murder that's right it's yes, probably a lot akin to most people who smoke cigarettes do not get emphysema right. they don't However, we cannot negate the fact that smoking increases the risk of emphysema. There's no doubt about it. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Not everybody does. This is the question. Okay. Senseless, meaningless. When a kid goes and shoots some, very often the kid's choice is an AR-15, an assault rifle. Mm Mm-hmm. They have to buy it. They have to purchase it. They have to get a hold of it. What's the symbolism in that? I'm not sure. I look more to what, what would cause 
because the high school I went to, this is a true story, in Lincoln, Nebraska, about 40 to 50% of the vehicles parked in the parking lot of my high school where 1,200 people graduated a year approximately, about 40 to 50% of those vehicles were pickup trucks that on the back gun rack was a loaded a double-barrel shotgun. At any time, they could have okay. came in and massacred, and they didn't. Right. And I want to know why. Because they were taking drugs, too, in 1974, 75. They were just doing things like marijuana and mushrooms. They were on but drugs, too. This particular set of drugs. That's exactly right. They weren't right. taking drugs that is known to increase suicide, homicide, violence, psychosis, hallucinations. They just weren't. But, but the if tendency it, towards violence was there before they took the drugs. Well, of course, a tendency for violence is in all of us. Well, you are, especially as a male. Absolutely. Testosterone right. and androgen. I mean, that's what I talked about earlier. That increased the survival of our species. If we had men that would not go to war or, or protect their families, our genetic pool would have died out. We all have right. a predisposition to violence. There's no doubt about These it. And in particular, men have fantasies about violence. I remember as an adolescent, I had them all over the place. Mm-hmm. But somehow, once the drug is introduced, it seems to increase the probability that the violence that's already built in will have a tendency to be acted upon. I say it takes away the gate. You had a built-in gate that kept those violent fantasies from becoming reality because you were, you were of sound mind. Your, yes. dr- your brain was not inundated with these chemicals that took the gate away. And after the... Shooting is over. They almost always, not always, but almost always kill themselves. So this is now an act of violence that even before it started seemed, I, I don't think it was impulse that they then killed themselves. I think that was part of the initial act. I do too. Okay. So that what we have acted out here is a very complex set of behaviors that are in part genetically determined. I wonder about these kids, how many of them felt disconnected from people? How many of them uh, um, uh, felt dehumanized, demonized? Um, It's such a complex thing, and now you throw into this mix this drug that drops the gate. Yep, it drops the gate. Yes. When you said disconnected, you said, I wrote them down. You said, I wonder how many of these kids felt disconnected. Yes. Demonized right. and dehumanized. Yes. Do yes. you see that drugs that they were prescribed does make them disconnected? Socially, they're completely and totally disconnected now. They are demonized because they have a brain disorder. And they are dehumanized because you're not talking to these children and adolescents about what's causing their feelings. You're dehumanizing them by saying you are this disease, you are this disorder. They're all of these things, and they're all of these things because it was, it was produced from the drug. I'm not saying they now didn't why would they in the drugs in the first place? You see, to me, we're going in a kind of a circle. Something was going on with these children. And they're children. That's the, that's the tragic 
the, the added tra- tragic issue here, they were children, that they were sent for diagnosis and treatment in the first place. Now you're getting into my study, and that's attachment. When you have, and I know we got to go pretty soon. We don't have much time left, but I know. I put on two hours for this. <laughs> so you can't do two we hours. Can take I our have time. To, I know you do, but I have to do. I have to go down, so I can only do an hour. But I would love to do two, but I can't. Okay, tonight. so twelve minutes. No, no, no. I, I thought maybe if a lot of people talked that, and you know, we may have to have a second show uh, together. That adds a lot of more discussion to this because this is really a wonderful discussion I'm having with you. Uh, I don't know if you're having I'm I'm having as much fun as I can handle without becoming suicidal. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to talk about this because you said you you made an excellent point. You said we're going in circles because they were referred for a particular reason. So let's talk about that just for a second. And yes, I'm going to bring up something very provocative, but it's the nucleus of my research. When we have attachment disruption, like we have in this country, 77% of our babies, 12 months of age and younger, are in full-time non-parental care. They are. And that is a problem when you don't have a secure base. So, of yes. course, referred for various reasons. But and it is not- a violation of our basic evolutionary need that is exactly what it is and then you call the child disordered are you kidding we diagnose them and we put them on this drug which drops the gate on an individual already in tremendous psychological distress lonely frightened you know the two boys that were uh, Klebo what was the other one's name do you remember Eric Harris and Dylan Klebo they had built large bombs made out of oxygen tanks in the garage. And the parents knew they were there and never asked them about it. Oh, no, I thought it was just the opposite. The, the, what I remember seeing is what uh, was about the, um, the closet, the boy's closet. And there were bombs in there. And the mother said, I saw the interview, said, I, I didn't know that. What? You didn't but, but, know what was in your, your son's closet? Thank you. In the garage, it doesn't matter the location. Um, the, the, the family is disrupted in these cases too. There you go. There you go. Right. Uh, and the best- and, and, and so that the entire society <laughs> is on the Titanic heading towards the iceberg. And now the cure is to diagnose the child as damaged and disordered permanently, because once you say it's a brain disorder, that's a lifetime sentence. Oh, these labels never go away. There's nothing you can do to get these labels. That's forever. Now, here's, the for me, the nub. I worked for the last years of my career, and I'm finished with it now. I, I don't work anymore for a variety of reasons, and I'm okay with it. Uh, it was time. In nursing homes. And I worked with dying and sick people. People who had no friends anymore, couldn't turn over in a bed, who have all kinds of, and they want to die. Not all of them. In fact, the ones I admired and and envied the most were people who had a genuine deep faith that when they went, they were going to wake up, be back with their wives, their husbands, their friends, all the dead people, uh, and they would be in heaven with a benevolent God. Um, 
But most of them don't believe that. And even the ones who say they believe that don't really quite believe that. And so they're in a tremendously terrible state psychologically. For me to see them, I had to put down major depressive disorder. The moment I put that down, in came somebody with the drugs. I felt it was obscene. And I continued to do it. I love that word. And you and I know... Hundreds of colleagues, the best people in the world, who won't be able to earn a living unless they use these diagnostic terms, exactly which continues right. to the society. We've got to keep fighting. That's what we have to do. And we what do we just... fight? We have to fight right. our colleagues to develop open systems of convincing the public that where there's a problem, it's a social problem. Where there's a problem, it's potentially a biological problem. Where there's a problem, it's a family problem. And that we're all part of it, the problem, unless we all start to become part of the solution. That's it. That's it. And, and I don't know how to do that anymore. I really don't, except I have this show and I talk to people like you. Um, and even when I was at ICSPP, the first year we had this fabulous, in 2003, a fabulous conference. And I ran it with uh, Dominic, uh, uh, what was that? Riccio. Riccio. Oh, uh, I hate myself. I, I can't remember names. Um, and the next year I ran it again with him. And this time I sent out a notice. I would like people to have a presentation of what psychotherapy could be if you didn't use any medical terms whatsoever, and made no diagnosis. I love it. Nobody did it. What they did instead was another conference on how drugs were bad and psychotherapy was the better way of handling mental disorders. But they still refused to reframe it, that we're not talking about mental disorders. We're talking about problems with living. Now we are, and by the way, our definition of the problems with living, because these problems that we see are problems are the desperate attempts of people, human beings, to solve problems that they don't have a better way of solving. That's right, and they're normal. They've been, they've yes. been seen all throughout history. Are no, all normal. If I had a dollar for everybody I work with who hallucinated, I'd have a lot of money. Yep. Hearing voice, people work very hard to find God to talk to them. And by the way, I love that. We have a society where 97% of the population believes in God. But if you say you heard God, you're crazy. It's really, but it's cultural. Because yes, say a holy man in India is, you know, crawling across the, the city on his knees and they're bloody. They don't right. take him they don't take him to the psychiatric ward. Oh, they revere no. him because they have a holy man in their midst. So I, I think we should stop at this point. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for this conversation. I loved every second of it. I did, But too. what we thank really you. needed to do, I wanted to do in a second phase of this, is talk about a psychotherapy. I put therapy in quotes for the metaphorical. It's a metaphorical illness, therefore it's a metaphorical therapy of trying to get people to engage in exactly this kind of conversation. That what we're doing every time we diagnose somebody, for the best of reasons, 
is we're adding another nail into an already very serious big coffin. And we have to stop. And I believe have, that. We have to stop. And I want to publicly thank you for what you're doing because all of your years of experience has culminated in this, I believe, so that you really can work to make a change. And I appreciate you very much, Dr. Simon. I appreciate you too, Dr. Stolzer. And let's say good night. It's time for dessert. And I didn't, <laughs> okay, I good night. Buy my ice cream. For, oh, God, I have to have just cake without ice cream. This is very depressing. I'm going to take a- <laughs> that, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thank you again. Good night. Good night. Take care. Good night.